please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations was opened by Queen Victoria in 1851, people flocked to Hyde Park to behold what they called the marvels. The magic power back then was steam, steam plows, a steam organ, even a steam cannon. You know what eventually won the prize at this exhibition? It was a steam-driven invention that had 7,000 parts, all kinds of pulleys and bells and whistles and gears, gears that meshed with other gears and and hummed in perfect harmony and, and whirled and perfect synchronization. I imagine that it was an impressive sight to behold. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a great picture of what the church ought to look like. People working together in harmony, using their gifts to contribute to the body, using their gifts to contribute to the production of the whole. Except for one thing. This prize-winning machine, it accomplished absolutely nothing. It was nothing more than a high-powered machine that, that looked impressive and ran on steam. Another word for hot air. That's not what we want the church to look like. And, and yet, the Apostle Paul says that that's essentially what happens in the church when we attempt to exercise our spiritual gifts without the love of Christ in our lives. Nothing. No production. No benefits. Nothing profitable. Only love makes our spiritual gifts profitable. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn back with me to the passage that was read just a few minutes ago, 1 Corinthians 13. This great chapter has been called the love chapter. It's actually a hymn. Certainly it's unlike the hymns that uh, we sing today. It is a hymn nonetheless. It has three stanzas and a refrain. Verses 1 to 3 would be the first stanza. Verses 4 to 7 would be the second stanza. Verses 8 to 12 would be the third stanza. And verse 13, the refrain. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a very gifted church. Paul says in chapter 1 that they have been enriched in every way and do not lack any spiritual gift. But they were divided. Apparently there were some who considered themselves greater than others and their gifts superior to the gifts of others. Factions had developed and, and there was jealousy and quarreling among the members. Paul says to them in chapter 3, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. He points out to them that their behavior has been immature and unspiritual. Here in chapters 12 to 14, Paul discusses spiritual gifts with them. 
And he highlights interpersonal relationships within the body of Christ and how we are to relate to one another as members of the body. Each part of the body needs all the other members. He finishes chapter 12 by saying, And now I will show you the most excellent way. And he begins chapter 14 by saying, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And so this great chapter, chapter 13, finds itself right in the middle of a section on interpersonal relationships and spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. I love that phrase, the most excellent way. Other ways may be good, others not so good, but love, that's the most excellent way. Paul proceeds to show us why love is indeed the most excellent way. For three Sundays, this morning, August 10th and August 17th, uh, we're going to be looking at this, at this passage. This morning we're looking at verses 1, 2, and 3, which basically tell us that without love, our gifts are useless. Love is what makes our gifts profitable. Some time ago, I, I read some off-the-wall one-liners, the... Uh, the kind of thing you can appreciate when you've been up way too late. When you're extremely tired and, and pretty much anything is funny to you. For example, if a cow laughed, would milk come out of its nose? Is it true that cannibals don't eat clowns because they taste funny? If con is the opposite of pro then what's the opposite of progress? Uh, takes a minute to sink in there. Isn't Disney World a people trap operated by a mouse? I'll spare you the whole list. There were lots of them. But one of them in particular caught my attention. It said, last night I played a blank tape at full blast. The mime next door went nuts. <laughs> you know, I read that and I thought, you know, that's, that's a good picture of these first three verses. You see, if love is absent from our lives as Christians, it's just like we're playing a blank tape at full blast. It, it's meaningless. I want to invite you to look with me this morning at these first three verses one at a time, looking at each verse as a whole. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And the principle in this verse is simply this. Without love, our words are careless. Without love, our words are careless. We can be the most eloquent preachers, teachers, or speakers in the world, but if our message isn't marked by love, it's only noise in people's ears. We can speak biblical truth every moment of every day, but if we're not showing and living Christ's love, we'll only turn people off to biblical truth. Worse yet, without love, our words are dangerous. James reminds us that the tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. 
He calls it a restless evil, full of deadly poison. If our words aren't infused with the love of God, our words will be careless and at times even harmful. E. Stanley Jones, the well-known missionary to India, had for a number of years supported a man, uh, a prominent person financially. And, uh, And when the time came when he could no longer support this gentleman, the man turned on Jones and attacked him in the public press. So E. Stanley Jones sat down and, and he wrote a letter of reply of, of only a few sentences, the kind of reply that, that just zings him and doesn't give him a leg to stand on. As he put it himself, the kind of reply you're proud of the first five minutes, the second five minutes you're not so sure, and the third five minutes you know you're wrong. But before he mailed this letter, he sent it to a few of his close friends, his accountability partners, and they sent it back with three simple words written in the margin, not sufficiently redemptive. As Jones read those words, he was devastated. He knew he was winning the argument, but losing his man. He knew immediately that the Christian is not in the business of winning arguments, but of winning people. So he tore up the letter and he said, Lord, you'll have to take care of my reputation. As it happened a few weeks later, Jones received in the mail a letter of apology from the man who had turned on him. And the Lord indeed took care of his reputation. You see, without love, our words are careless and often dangerous. Stated positively, love makes our words redemptive. If all our eloquence and fine speech is in the service of self, at best we edify no one, and at worst, at worst, we do real damage to others in the body of Christ. One of the ways that we tend to damage each other in the church is through fault-finding. We in the church, you and I in the body of Christ, we need to beware of a critical, judgmental spirit masquerading as discernment. Several years ago, when we lived in South Carolina, I received in the mail from time to time a popular Christian journal. And as I was reading some of the articles, I found myself generally agreeing with with the points that were being made, but with a strange sort of uneasiness, almost a sadness in my spirit. And I finally, after some time, I finally realized why, and it was this very issue. You see, while the truth was being spoken, it was not being spoken in love at all. It was being shot through the barrel of a cannon aimed at destroying its target. Not sufficiently redemptive. How easy it is to let ourselves become critical. We're so very concerned about truth and accuracy, and rightly so. But I wonder if maybe sometimes in our efforts to guard against a gnat-sized error of truth or doctrine, we promote a camel-sized error of loveless correction. Without love, our words are careless. Love makes our words redemptive. 
Now let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Taking this verse as a whole, point two is simply this. Without love, our wisdom is worthless. Without love, our wisdom is worthless. Stated positively, love makes our wisdom valuable. Paul talks about prophecy, about fathoming all mysteries and all knowledge, and about a faith that moves mountains. Some have suggested that the idea of the ability to remove mountains was so common among the rabbis that remover of mountains was one of their admiring titles for a great teacher. Regardless of whether that's the case or not, this verse is a forceful rebuke of intellectual and spiritual pride. Paul had already touched on this matter in the early chapters of the book. He writes in chapter 1, Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And in chapter 2, he writes, For I resolved to know nothing while I was among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Still, it doesn't take too much for us to start thinking we're really something special, does it? I think particularly in an environment like Houghton, known for its quality and its intellectual prowess, and rightly so. I think we need to watch out for intellectual and spiritual pride. You see, this kind of pride doesn't come knocking on the front door. It sneaks in the back door. It plays on our fears of becoming insignificant. We tend to want to overlook chapter 12, verse 7. Now to each the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Instead, we would much rather rewrite it to say, now to each the manifestation of the Spirit is given to make us look good. One of the tactics that Satan uses against us is to try to stress our spiritual strength. That part of us that carries the divine. You will be like God, is his slogan. And he sets this slogan in front of us in countless variations, urging us to reject the truth that we are finite, to reject the limits of our humanity. <clears throat> Brennan Manning says, Every time that I try to soar above the inherent limitations of my human nature and pretend I'm an angel, I wind up playing the beast. Intellectual pride fits into this category. I attempt to bridge the vast gulf that separates creature from creator by disavowing my limited finite intelligence and I take myself so seriously that I feel superior to others. I presume that I am more important in the eyes of God than others. Insidiously, Satan stresses my charismatic gifts and ensnares me in spiritualism or spiritual pride. While I was in college, I remember interacting with two professors, one of them fully retired at the time and the other retired but still serving as an adjunct professor. 
both of these men had written extensively and would probably be considered among the uh, our denomination's top scholars of and theologians of their era. My memories of them are distinctly different. One man appeared to me to be frustrated, perhaps even bitter. In talking with him, I got the impression that he felt as though he hadn't received his due, the accolades he deserved for his work and the wisdom that he contributed to the denomination. The other man's life seemed to overflow with joy, and he was always kind and gracious. He loved the students and was available to them. In his classes, he only occasionally referred to his own work. Much more often, he praised the works of his younger colleagues, whose scholarly works were more recent. The first man impressed me with his learning and his scholarship. It's the second man who impacted my life and my walk with Christ. What do others see first in our lives? Do they see our wisdom, our intelligence, our learning first? Or do they see the love of Jesus Christ shining through first, making our wisdom, our intelligence, and our learning valuable and edifying for the body of Christ? When we attempt to use our spiritual gifts for self-serving ends, when we attempt to exercise them without the proper motive of love, we wind up in spiritual pride. Without love, our wisdom is worthless. Stated positively, love makes our wisdom valuable. Now let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. The principle that I want us to see from this is simply this. Without love, our sacrifices are useless. Without love, our sacrifices are useless. Stated positively, love makes our sacrifices productive. Without love, to put them all in proper perspective, all our good deeds and all of our sacrifices ultimately profit us nothing. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 6? Three times, once in regard to the needy, once in regard to praying, and once in regard to fasting, Jesus warns his disciples not to be like the hypocrites who do these things to be seen by others. All three times, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. All our giving and self-sacrifice, if done for personal recognition and self-interest, amounts to nothing in God's eyes. Whatever recognition we receive at the time is all the reward that we'll get. That's what Jesus tells us. It's pretty easy for us to slip into this mindset, isn't it? We try hard to appear altruistic, but we can get pretty smug sometimes about our giving or our sacrifices, patting ourselves on the back, congratulating ourselves for being so magnanimous or basking in the praise of others. Or we tend to take the role of the martyr, dropping hints here and there about just how much we've sacrificed and how difficult it's been as a result of our faithfulness. But without love, 
our sacrifices are useless. Love makes our sacrifices productive. Jesus said, what good will it be for us if we gain the whole world yet forfeit our souls? Or what can we give in exchange for our souls? Only when we give from hearts filled with the love of Christ will our sacrifices be profitable. Without love, our words are careless. Love makes our words redemptive. Without love, our wisdom is worthless. Love makes our wisdom valuable. Without love, our sacrifices are useless. Love makes our sacrifices productive. Bob Hope once said, if you haven't got any charity in your heart, you have the worst kind of heart trouble. In a paraphrase of the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, Ruth Walsh says, I was naked and you questioned my lack of modesty and appearance. I was in prison and you debated the legal aspects of interference. I was penniless and you discussed tax-deductible donations from your wealth. I was sick and you thanked the Lord for the blessings of your health. I was hungry and you formed a club to study malnutrition. I was homeless, and you said God's love was my shelter under any condition. I was lonely, and you left me by myself while you and your friends prayed. You seem so holy and close to God, yet I am still sick and alone and afraid. You know, we have a lot of giftedness in our congregation. God has blessed this congregation with Lots of eloquence, lots of wisdom, a lot of sacrifice, and a lot of giving. But how are we doing with the love part? That's the question of 1 Corinthians 13. In and of themselves, spiritual gifts are good. Paul tells us to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. But where there are spiritual gifts, there's always the danger of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride creeps in when we focus on the gift instead of on the giver. And when we attempt to exercise the spiritual gifts apart from love. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us that enables us to exercise our spiritual gifts in love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit need to be used in conjunction with the fruit of the Spirit in order to be profitable. Without love, we are all like a high-powered machine that looks impressive, runs on steam, but accomplishes and contributes absolutely nothing. Without love, all of our giftedness amounts to nothing. It is wasted and potentially harmful. Is your life marked by the love of God? Let me encourage you today to examine your heart. Ask God to fill you with his spirit and enable you to exercise in love the gifts that he has given to you. I encourage you this morning to make your prayer like that prayer of Amy Carmichael who prayed, Love through me, love of God. There is no love in me. O fire of love, light thou the love that burns perpetually. Let's pray. 
Father, we are indeed grateful for your many gifts to each one of us. You have blessed us in many ways, Lord, materially and spiritually. And as believers, we know that that you have given to each person spiritual gifts. I pray that you would enable each one of us through the power of your Holy Spirit to exercise those spiritual gifts that you have given to us in love. Thank you for this wonderful chapter in your word. I pray that we would reference it often. And I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and lives that we might look more and more like Jesus each and every day and that our hearts might be filled to overflowing with the love of Christ for you and for all those around us. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.